0: Again, emotional control is a key factor. You need to be on tune yourself as a coach and somehow remove yourself from those emotive moments where you lose sight of the game perhaps and and control or influence over it, you know? And he said to me, you know, "What's, what's being a professional mean to you? And I said, oh, I get paid. And he said, no, 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 no. A professional is someone who studies their profession. Things that um, resonates most through my career is uh, certainly as a player is the only asset in football is people, and yet the game is notoriously bad at dealing with people.
1: Welcome to the ProPlay.com podcast in conversation with Rob Sherman. A coach who's traveled the world who has done it all from being a player to a coach worked in the men's and the women's game worked at every level uh, ran national associations on both sides of the world a real coach educator and a real person who's got time to develop and help so for the young aspiring coaches that are listening today this is going to definitely be worth investing a time. Without further ado, I'm going to introduce Rob. Rob, it's great to have you and I'm I'm super excited because you're a big, big part of my development and my journey as well. So, thanks for joining us.
0: My oh, pleasure, Dave. Great to see you, mate, to be honest. Thank
1: you so much. We go back to, I would, I want to say it's the early 2000s for me, but for you, it started a lot before that as a player and you benefit from the playing background and, and obviously transitioning into the coach. Um, you must have seen some change, Rob, in terms of, just sort of pre 2000 how the game has changed and really you were one of the pioneers of starting football development coach education it wasn't around it was it wasn't a thing and and you were kind of one of the pioneers in Britain certainly of uh, of bringing that to the fore so can we start there maybe talk about how your transition from playing to coaching even began
0: well i suppose that the, the the playing journey was you know, started you know back in the 60s when i was a kid Uh, obviously, Um, and I was lucky enough to to break into the Aberystwyth youth team when I was 13, made my senior debut at 14 in the reserves, first team debut at 15. had a trial with Cardiff City, and in those days, literally, there was about 100-plus kids turned up at uh, Jubilee Park. You know, you had 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off, la-di-la-di-la. And then it was an announcement, you know, with X, Y, Z, you know, 20-odd kids stay. And I was one of the 20 and they whittled it down to two kids who signed schoolboy forms. And that was in 1975. And I joined the club in 1977 as an apprentice and signed Pro there in 78. Um, And, you know, so, I mean, how many boys, for instance, in that experience might have had a bad trip down, have been sick? You know, just nerves have got in. And when you look at the modern era with the academy and that whole process, it really does give a chance for someone to develop and be themselves, whereas in that experience it was luck I had a lucky day you know um and I know someone else who was on that trial who was a very good player didn't have a lucky day, you know, mm-hmm. and so that in itself is a significant shift um in terms of approach and development and a long term investment
1: it It has all changed uh the the guidelines around trials and player welfare and whatever it might be now. I mean, it, it's, I mean, for the better, of course. Like, I mean, in talent ID and, and and that back in the day, I mean, how many players were missed, like you said, but I think everyone was doing their best at that time, probably, what they knew. And as things yeah. changed, people kind of learned from that and people come through the system. And now obviously, having experienced that yourself, did that did that have a major impact on how you kind of saw talent development as you then became the person on the other side deciding how the programmes would run? Did that have a big impact on you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I tried to look at it from the point of view of, you know, uh, looking deeper, looking at the personality as well, and looking at maybe decision-making as a factor. And you certainly wanted to see the the player more than once. So in the old centre of excellence days that we started with the trust, you know, Mm. the boys came in for a six-week period or whatever. And so you had a real chance to get them, for them to get familiar with the environment, with the other players, and with you, and yeah. vice versa. And I think that was, that is pretty much the norm now. Yeah. Um, but in some regards, my time at Cardiff City shaped me as a coach and my future thinking, if I'm candid.
1: Yeah. What well, What would you say were the the things that stayed with you even till today? Were there things that that, that you'd maybe picked up then that because obviously, as we go, we're all lifelong learners and we all engage and we all evolve. But were some staples that you picked up right then still with you today?
0: Uh, on the positive side, there was things uh, that was sort of the human side to the, to the game, you know, around your characteristics, you know, when you worked hard, when you made an effort, that type of feedback. There was yeah. very little tactical work that we did, very little we were expected to know. Um, and the other thing I found that as a, someone who questioned quite often, uh, certain coaches saw me as a threat. Yeah. And, you know, were very defensive and sometimes, you know, quite aggressive in, in the sense mm. of I ask a question, they probably knew the answer, but they couldn't articulate it. Mm. And I think if there's something around uh, that I've taken into coach development and youth development, is, you know, no one has all the answers. Mm. I can give you an example that we one of the sessions I did with the Welsh under 16s. Um, on the paper, it was an eight out of ten. When yeah. uh, when we were on the pitch, it's running at about two out of ten. And I stopped the session, said to the boys, "Lads, you know I'm trying to achieve X, Y, Z. It was a, a, a bit of a switch from you know to, the two advanced midfield players, yeah. but it's not working. What do you reckon? And someone came up with a, a solution, and I said, "Let's try that," and it worked. And I can guarantee that those players bought into me much more from the fact I trusted them than tried to protect myself and blame them, say, for instance, you know?
1: This is huge because I see this even today. I see this now. I see, I, I've, I've watched coaches. I've been in environments with coaches. I've, I know coaches who they'll, a question will be raised. And just in the way that they approach the answer, even in the way that they feel like they're, being targeted, like you, you've almost you, you've broken that connection with the players. You're talking about using that opportunity to increase the connection with the players, which is not even making the best of a bad situation. You're actually making a huge positive.
0: I think I think so. I mean, ultimately, you know, the wisdom of the group, someone there will have a solution. Mm. You know, and sometimes it doesn't come readily to yourself. Mm. And obviously, Q and A's, you know, question answers are, are very, a very popular tool nowadays. No, because yeah. ultimately, you know, you can test the player's knowledge, but equally so, you know, it, there's no harm in admitting, I don't know, let's mm. try X, let's try Y, you know, no one has all the solutions.
1: Mm. Mm. And Rob, there's so many people out there listening today who will be, you know, to see someone with your resume and background experience, just, just talking honestly like that, that's going to give a lot of people a lot of a lot of solace and a lot of confidence, because I think sometimes... People can feel because of the analysis on TV and the twenty four seven soccer cycle, news cycle, whatever you are. Like you know, it always seems like Pep comes up with the answers. Klopp's always got the answers. But the more and more you listen to these high performers, they're saying what you're saying now.
0: Well, you know, I I think that you know, obviously, the great thing about them is they're they're learners, they're lifelong learners. I, I don't know them personally, but it seems to me that they're students of the game, mm. and they're, and are still students of the game. But I'll give an example of uh, how. That came about. When I signed for Cardiff City, the then manager was Jimmy Andrews, a fantastic fantastic person. Mm. And he said to me, you know, what's what's being a professional mean to you? And I said, oh, I get paid. And he said, no, 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 no. A professional is someone who studies their profession. And that's resonated with me ever since. Mm. And, you know, I think as a coach, you've never uh, got to the point where you know it all. Mm. I don't think anyone can say they've ever done a 10 out of 10 session. Because if you do a very good session, you've just set the new bar and the tens higher, isn't it? You know? <laughs> so you know. And so um, you know, you're constantly reviewing, constantly uh trying to evolve, constantly uh, you know, picking up on little nuances that people give you, whether deliberately or not. And that's the whole part of the journey. So you shouldn't feel threatened by the fact that sometimes, you know, you have a bad day, it's a fact of life.
1: I, I have benefited, and I'm going to say this to you, Rob, I've probably never thanked you for this, but I have benefited from being under an environment that you created as technical director, certainly in my early years. And you would have known even back then, that, I mean, this is something people talk about now a little bit, but in, in 2000, people weren't saying that. People weren't saying and thinking the way you're thinking. what what, what why, did, why were you able to see it like that back then? Why were you able to give young coaches like me and and many others that I could name now we're all, are you all know, going on and had careers and working still now in the Football association of Wales, why we were you able to give us the environment you did to make mistakes, to learn, to understand that we weren't going to be perfect when perhaps nobody else was doing that or very few other people were doing that?
0: There's probably a couple of reasons. I think the first one is probably, you know, in my own journey, I didn't really make it as a pro. I was out the game by 21-22. Um, I had ten years coaching in non-league. Um, a friend of mine, uh, 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 I'll name him John Davis, who was the uh, academy manager at Hull. and played in golf at Hull. John sort of said to me, "Rob, you, know, you need to get on the courses." And I'd done my own prelim badge when I was seventeen, you know, uh, back in Cardiff. And at that stage, because I'd been an ex-pro and stuff, I could have I could jump to the B license, but for an administrative thing, I missed out. Um, Basically, I went out to do a Football Leaders Award, which Mark Hazelwood took. And i got to be honest, in that instance, I realised what I didn't know. Yeah. It was a real eye-opener. <laughs> and it was something where you went, OK. So the thing being that, you know, I just think that that in itself sort of leads you to think of being much more open and actually encouraging people to, to walk the walk and take the journey. One thing I would say to, you know, the generation of coaches, which was around at this stage, you were hard grafters. You know, it, it, you weren't, you didn't see it as a profession where it was a, you know, you could play a round of golf every day or something, you were all working your, your socks off. It was a great environment. You know, we had Terry Ball, Mark, uh, Hutch, Tommy, you know, people like that, and they were all open. Mm. And there was a real wisdom in the group. They were challenging. If you said something stupid, you know, you might get shot down in flames. Yeah but okay. if you said something that had a, a, a the the an iota of a good concept mm-hmm. the challenge made it even stronger because people mm-hmm. would contribute and therefore that in itself became a very almost like a something innate that you wanted to bring into every environment where actually you get the group sharing contributing challenging to make things stronger not necessarily weaker you know and if you can pop the balloon with the first challenge then it's not very strong is it Indeed. But on the Indeed. other hand, if someone adds and adds and adds, and you build you build a solid tower, then you've you've got a good platform. And I think by the time you arrived in in the building, you know, and and the like, that was the norm. Yeah. And so the fact you might have an idea and contribute, no one saw it as you know you being a smart smart mm-hmm. aleck or anything like that. It was just the norm, so it was expected.
1: Which which was phenomenal for for. You know maybe four or five of us at you know early twenties just we you're right, we would have done anything in them days we, we like you know there was conferences that we really shouldn't have been at, but we could come and pick up the cones or we could you know we we could you know just watch from the gate post or the fence we we would do it and and for that reason that we never felt, and I've talked to a few of the other younger lads who are now kind of older in their careers, but they all felt the same thing that while we weren't there to be. You know, the contributors or the main people, that wasn't the point. The point was that we were on the bus and we were, yeah. we were picking up as much as was, was there. And, and if we had a question, somebody like you, you know, somebody would answer the question and would give us a minute or two minutes, which I'm sure came at a cost to all of you. All of you guys at, at, at the time, you probably had places to be, things to do and, and work to do and, and, and families to be with. But you would spend 20 minutes talking to us on the way to the car. And we'll never forget that. Not just me.
0: Well, I think I think one of the things that um, resonates most through my career is uh, certainly as a player is the only asset in football is people, and yet the game is notoriously bad at dealing with people.
1: Looking after people, you're right.
0: And in essence, if you can actually maximise your people, you know, and you have to recognise that everyone has different personalities, different um, different traits. Therefore, you've got to be adaptable and and work. With them, in other words, they are, they, they are who they are, aren't they? Mm. And you've got to allow them to be who they are. Mm. And, uh, you know, and therefore, that, that's a skill in itself. And the best coaches
1: are people, people. And, and they might let you down at times. They might not meet the expectation. They might not fully understand that. And maybe not because they wanted to. They'd, you know, we see it in young players all the time, don't we? Maybe they're just of an age. I'm not, I'm not so quick now as I was when I was younger to rush young players to the point they need to be at because of the power of speculation, because of the the value in learning and going through it. And I suppose the same for young coaches. Nobody wants to be seen as incompetent, but you're not incompetent. You're learning. You're you're in a position where, you know, you you maybe do need more knowledge or different knowledge. I'm sure you're taking care of that if you're serious about your profession nowadays, but you do need an environment where you can just go and not be chastised every time you make a mistake. And if you put a poor session on, and, you're, you know, people are watching. They're going to treat that in the right way and give you some feedback that actually helps because they care. And
0: that's I, what you doing. know From the coach education part of view, that you'll find that some people, you know, you know that they uh, will take on every little bit of feedback, digest mm-hmm. it, you know, assimilate it into their own environment. And yet some people are a little bit more immune to the feedback and they'll keep, you know, plowing a path. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, often you're doing the best Favor for them when you actually fail them. indeed, And you actually you know put a little line in the center and say, slow down, think of these things. Now it's not a, a, and this is a clear one it's not a difference of opinion on how the game should be played because as an instructor, your opinion on how uh, on your style of play or your whatever is not relevant at all. Mm. What they've got to be able to do is articulate their style and their beliefs. Mm. And if they've got gaps in that, you know just slowing them down, helping them fill the gaps. And I've had numerous people who've come back and thanked me, you know, yeah. uh, many times. So they're like, "Oh, I'm glad you really did that, did this, did that," because it the acceleration once they've got over those barriers has been phenomenal. It's,
1: it's you know? amazing. It's amazing you say that, right? Ryland Morgans did that for me. Like, you know, Ryland was a guy who worked at the FAW, worked in the Premier League. You know, amazing, good, good player. Obviously, amazing coach. Been around top, top environments. Worked with Wales and everything. He assessed me on my B license back in. I don't know when it was, right? And um, he literally did that, exactly what you said. Stopped in your tracks. You're not going to pass this time. And I'll never forget when he gave me the feed. It was at Penningham Park, right? Yeah. Uh, in the Kandak suite at Park. Phenomenal place. One of the most iconic places in Welsh football, of course. Right? And he sat me down and, and he went through this feedback. But the way he stood up and addressed me and kind of moved, he was showing me a movement of a wide player to get him behind. And my movement was more like the li- a linesman skipping up and down yeah. the pit, right? <laughs> completely wrong but I thought it was right and he he literally broke it down showed me what I was doing wrong, the the way that he did it engaged me and gave me the feedback but left me feeling afterwards, even though I'd failed my licence, was the catalyst for why I went on and and wanted to carry on and go further, exactly what you've just said
0: I can remember one time, I I couldn't remember the candidate's name and of course I wouldn't mention it anyway but um, (laughs) I had Dave Bell next to me as invigilated in those days and we used to swap over and yeah. I said to someone, you know, how do you think you went on? And he said, oh, best session of the week, much better than you've lost. And it was awful, you know, and he <laughs> failed. And he no. actually failed the, se- he failed the second one. Yeah. And then when he came back on the third one, um, yeah. he he had phys- physically like, was much, much better fluid, you know, and we were like, that's different gravy. And yeah. he said, I can never thank you enough.
1: For the work, yeah. For the because
0: it, it had actually made him reflect, made him think. And it and and it, he transitioned into someone, and I have no idea what he did afterwards, you know. Yeah. But it was one of those where you go, he he was he was on route to be a good coach, a very
1: And good that's coach. and that's why you do it, and that, and that's why I wanted to do it because I I learned that, like you said, verifying and watching and doing all that stuff, I I could tell the value that everyone was taking and the pride that they were taking in helping people on their journey. It wasn't just about awarding a license or doing no. a job; it was more than that, way more. Yeah,
0: you, know, you, you know, ultimately, I mean, you. We all value, I value every license CBA and you want people to, to to feel as though they, you know, it, it's meaningful. So ultimately, you know, there's a standard and it's important that they reach the standard. And if they've reached the standard, they know they've reached the standard, there's no gift. That's right. And I think that in itself is something, but also you, you want them to fulfill their potential. And if you can help, and it's only a small, let's be fair, in the coach education sphere, They've accrued loads of experience as a player, probably got loads of coaching experience. You're only contributing a few percent, but that might hopefully be the percent that makes you know, the, difference the difference to you know, uh, uh, helps them capitalize on their ability.
1: There must be thousands of people out there now who have been influenced by, by you personally, by the programs that you ran, by the things you put in place, by the ripple effects you'll never know. It's, it's like, I suppose, when you work, as you've done with national teams, you'll never know the impact that you have on, on a country, on, 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 a, on a group of people, on a group of coaches. And, and that's, a, that's a big responsibility.
0: It is. And I always sort of say that, you know, Jess, in, in jest really, as well as anything, is the thing about player development, as long as you haven't, haven't mucked them up, you've done all right. And the same with coach development. You know, I, I'll give you an example. I was back in the UK after I'd moved out to New Zealand in about probably about two oh nine something like that the mm-hmm. first team were training down at um, at the Vale I'd popped back to see some of the lads um you know from the trust and uh, yeah you know the the lads in the first team came over you know again I don't want to name names and drop names mm-hmm. but you know a bit of that golden generation who would come through yeah. and they come up and they've come over shook hands give you a cuddle and you think ah I didn't actually damage yes, them I didn't mess it up. for Good. And that's enough, you know? And again, in terms of your contribution to their development, minuscule. They they were all in good clubs and the good coaches had a great education. If you just added 1%, fine. If you took away 1%, not fine. You know?
1: I I actually do know what you're saying and, I, and you are being humble a little bit, but there is something to what you're saying as well. It is true. And what do you think then, Rob, that, you know, without getting into the nitty gritty of it, what, what the coaches do that, you know, is it because we say all the time there's no right and wrong way, but what the co- what is the main things that coaches do that kind of stop them from achieving their potential? Or what are the things they don't see, perhaps, their blind spots that they might want to think about in terms of, okay, maybe I need to redirect. Maybe I'm not having the impact with the players I want to have. Maybe I don't want to mess them up, as you said. What, what, what have you seen? Has that changed over the years? Is that the same now as you saw before? Um, I think a number of things. I mean, myself
0: and a, and a colleague in Australia, Kelly Cross, we developed a coach development model, which had sort of at the bottom of the of the, the box, if you like, was knowledge. At the top was a vision and philosophy. And then you had three columns, which are management or leadership match and training. And if you like, you know, you need a clear philosophy on how you lead and manage, how you play and how you actually train, you know, your training methodology and i think sometimes you know um the devil's in the detail it always is you know and, and we linked it to um if you like uh, uh, again we linked this sort of methodology where you gave the players tasks if you like and then cues or you know, triggers whatever you might say so you know as in essence you might be saying right the team task today for argument's sake is you know if whenever we can can we get someone behind the back line well whenever we can you know that some people will do it when you shouldn't. <clears throat> we'll try. Yeah. Yeah. So then you have to try and point out um, you know, when the right time is. Now, some players will immediately know when's right and wrong, so you don't need to influence them. But every player is on a slightly different speed of learning, aren't they?
1: Yeah.
0: And that's where you need to personalise it. And I think you know that's where you need patience, that's where you need to tailor your feedback to each individual, whether it's You know, audio. Some will accept words. Others it needs to be visual. Some are kinesthetic. They'll they'll get it by working through the motions. Mm. So you need the full set of clubs as a coach, and you need to sort of devise the methodology of when to get out the putter, when to get out the wedge, you know, when to get out the driver, etc. And you know, the toolbox. So, and and the toolbox will change, you know, depending on the players you're with. So I think the biggest mistake is that. You know, some people limit their toolbox. They they don't challenge themselves enough to to try different things. And uh, and again, it's the devil in the detail. What are the type of things that you can say? So rather than you know, when the ball's here type feedback, you know, it could be, what are we trying to do? Well, they globalize it. So they say, well, we're trying to you know move the opponent to create space between or behind. Great. Okay. So what are you trying to do? off the ball. Oh, I'm trying to do X or Y. Good. They understand what they're doing. Right. Why did you do why did you do that? I did that because well I don't know. Well what did you see? And then you can relate it back to perception if you like, which helps with decision making. But it's a case of a, they need to understand what they're trying to do in the global sphere. And I think if I if I'm if I'm with some coaches it's a little bit written down. They're just going to get at their key points. Yeah, if they're not watching what's happening.
1: For for people out there who might be thinking that's not me, or maybe that's me, but I don't admit it. Like, how do they get past that? What if what if they've kind of realised a little bit? Maybe I haven't had the impact in a session that I want. You know, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because like nobody wants yeah. to go there, really, do they? And I, and when I started this, I was like, I, I listened to a lot of things where people don't really ask the Question that everyone wants to hear. I think that's what people want to know. Like, what, how, how can they turn their mind to this if they weren't aware? Even if they need a recheck, like, what advice would you give people who are saying maybe I don't need to expand my toolbox? What I do is just fine, and they can take it or leave it. But what advice would you give them?
0: Well, I think uh, one of the great things we had in, you know, my area was Cardiff, and I had King Coy or whatever, you know. So we had the, the college up there, and the likes of Mitch and you know the boys were doing the courses up there. I had loads of students doing PhDs who would come down and say, "Can I film you?" Yeah, and then wire you up,
1: yeah. and
0: then you'd hear what you were actually saying.
1: Yeah,
0: and sometimes you'd go, "Oh, hang on, that's not good." <laughs>
1: yeah, you know,
0: I can remember one time I had a terrible cold, and all you could hear was, cold. you know, like, I, it was like like I was a pig, basically, <laughs> and and I was thinking, "God, you know, that's not good for the place." and that would it, you know that can manifest itself into like a pre-match talk i mean there's a lot of in, a lot of data now that says actually you you know maybe don't don't even do them because if you've been working on a tactical aspect through a week ready for a game if you say too much before the game you can you know what agitate the players mm-hmm. some you know you have to trust that they know or maybe you do a little group they do it in groups themselves and back front, front back five front five something of like that nature But the point is, I think filming yourself and recording yourself is a great way of learning. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I had a de facto, if you like, benefit of that because it must have happened a dozen times. And every time you watch it back and sort of go, oh, well, that was good. You know, what did I say there? All right, right, got it. And then at other times you go, oh, hang on. You know, tone, uh, amount of information, you know, all those things. You go, cock. You know, if I was listening to that, I'd have switched off after thirty seconds.
1: And you can't really argue, can you? When you, I think, with video and audio, you kind of when you see it, it, it smacks you in the face, and you're like, "Wow, that's me!" Like that is really happening.
0: And this is what we did in Australia. So basically, in Australia, we never gave topics. Hmm. So you analyzed to get an opponent, and you told us on a on a sheet what your analytics said. You know how they played, what the key things were. You prepared your session plan. And then basically you videoed yourself for conducting the session. Now then we could stop it and go, You know, minute 20, uh, the opponent doesn't look like you said. There you go. Right? You know, oh, minute 20, the organization of the opponent is excellent. Looks like the problem you, you you know, you emphasized, la de la de la. And so you can actually break it down and, you know, and give them, they can go to that timeline, look at that little thing and, and, and also reflect on that, I think, is a very good process um, and very powerfully powerful one when you do that, because it's something that what you encourage them to do is also do that themselves prior to submitting. So, you know, they can film 20 sessions and they go, no, no. oh, this one's a good one. And it goes. Yeah. But then you've just
1: promoted the learning cycle, haven't you? Indeed. It's the work they do away from there to get to that point again, yep. the power of the speculation again, of you know, them deciding for themselves almost what's good and what's bad rather than an authoritative figure coming in saying yes, no, indifferent, which doesn't yep. hit the year in 2023, maybe the way it did in, in 2000. You're right, yeah,
0: yeah, 100%. And you're not saying, and again, you're not actually saying no, you can't do that, mm. you know, it's more a case of you should think of maybe think of, you know. Um, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, it, it's a fine line obviously, you know, you don't want to be imposing your methodology on anyone but equally so, you've got some experience and, and also what we need to do is put our feet in the players' boots. You know, mm-hmm. if I was listening to this what would I think?
1: Yeah. I, I Honestly, I, even now I, I, I had a moment I think it was last week I saw some feedback on, on somebody put something on Twitter and it was seven points or six points to consider for coaches, right? And I always look at that stuff and I always think there's some really good content out there. I think it's important how you consume it. You don't just parrot fashion, take it and use it. But there's definitely more out there you can see on social media these days. One of these points was talking about how quickly the match goes when there's 20 minutes to go and you're losing and how long it takes when you're winning as a player. And I immediately, I, I transformed back in time to 14 years old ABBA Park, ABBA versus Penrose. Ross, we're losing 1-0. And I remember how that time went so quick, desperate yes. to get a goal. And it took me right back to my childhood years. And it's, I don't know that enough of things in the last decade have done that for me that I can remember back that far and empathise in the way that you're talking about. And I don't think it was a terrible thing to happen to me. It really helped me to understand and empathise and go back. Whereas probably in my late 20s and early 30s, I didn't have that level of empathy maybe well,
0: i think empathy is uh, it is one of the major things of a leader anyway you know it's a huge mm. factor mm. obviously emotional intelligence is another one but empathy and actually having some relation to what the situation the players are facing on the pitch you know so um, and and another one is you know if you get anxious yourself it translates mm. you know uh, I, I often talk about you know my experience with working with John Herman, we'd often be at the front of the coach on the way to a game, having a laugh, you know, mm. and, and whatever, and being relaxed. Mm. And there's no doubt it relaxed the players.
1: Giving the players a licence to do the same thing. And yeah,
0: yeah, relax them. Now, we, you know, we're not talking about, you know, mucking around, but we would have a little chuckle and stuff like that, and, you know, and sort of be very relaxed. Mm. And rather than being at the front, you know, being very tight and nervous, and actually that transferring back down the bus, you know, you're dead right. So I think empathy is a huge factor and actually putting yourself in a situation like that. And you are right, you know, as a coach, you know, you've got to be, very. you know, match management is a key thing. So do coaches have a subs plan, for instance? So if I'm one up and I'm playing, I know the opponent, and one up, do I have a player I think I'll put on because they're the type of player who can stabilize the game, you know, control the tempo? Um, Or do you have your one down, who do you put on, you know? Or do you just play it by ear all the time? Uh, Generally, I'll always have a subs plan. Doesn't mean I follow it, but it's a case of, you know, worked around some eventualities to start with. And then obviously there's the, well, the off the cuff ones, but ultimately, you know, things are organized and planned.
1: I think we love, um, and we don't want to take this away from football, but I think we love the idea, don't we, deep down of the romantic notion of somebody hitting some insight in the moment and making a decision and like, yes. you know, throwing on a substitute and it works out well, that speaks to the narrative of, of fandom and, and it's all what makes the game wonderful. But the reality at high performance level where you've spent the entire time of your career basically is that often comes from a place of huge planning prior and and just cool decision-making under pressure. When there's 50,000 people in the stadium and, 10 members of the high-performance staff and maybe six have different opinions and you're sat there and you've got to be the one giving the information or you're the one making the decision, it's all that work and prep that you're talking about that actually makes it look romantic like you've had a stroke of genius when really that might be something you've been thinking about for months and months on end.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, again, in in one of the um, team environments that I was involved in, we we sat down, you know, the, we found that the staff were making comments, you know, almost commenting on the game, shouting information and stuff and getting wrapped up in the game. So we sort of sat down with them all and said, right, so in the performance window, you know, as the medics, for instance, or the physio, what are you analyzing? Mm. Oh, you know, injuries and stuff. You're okay, so have a look at how people move and run. You know, we, you might actually recognize fatigue. You might actually recognize someone's carrying a knock or whatever. I just had a knock and it's impacting. And therefore we need to have that information. Same with the, you know, GPS tracking, whatever might the, the uh, sports uh, S&C might be doing. You know, ultimately, you know, I've always been in a situation where I often was up in the stand. Obviously now it's legal to be linked to the bench, um, yeah. you know, and, and give the feedback. Uh, we always had film tips at half time. La-de-la-de-la. So, you know, the whole thing was organized in a way. And structured in a way, it still doesn't mean you can't make the off the cuff decision mm. and and the like, but the, the romanticism that it's you know a bit of stroke of genius it's like yeah, I'm not sure about that
1: <laughs> and we need a bit of that, don't we They're like the game needs to have that magic to it, but I think a lot of people listening here and certainly aspiring coaches they'll they'll see your they'll see your name here and they'll they'll tune in and they'll they'll be glad to hear that there's a process and and uh, you know, because if it's a process, it's something you can get better at and you can something you, you can be experienced in. And maybe they're not, maybe there's people listening right now who, who haven't done that and haven't thought of these things and have never considered that. And they can they can go away and start working on that for their own kind of philosophy as well.
0: And I, I, one of the things I sort of believe in, it's a personal thing, is yeah. as a player, I never really got upset by the referee. And I don't, as a coach, ultimately, I can't control him. Mm. Um, you know, it, we make bad decisions as coaches the players make bad decisions as players the referee will make a few bad decisions so what you know i and i'm not i'd be candid I, without getting into it i'm not a fan of var it's another subjective yeah, decision it, yeah. and it for me it, i think it undermines the referee it's almost a case of trying to sterilize the game from the media's point of view you know can't, no mistakes and you sort of go in some respects it's it's accelerated the debate about referees decisions not not exacerbated it so you know, again, emotional control is a key factor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, you need to be on tune yourself as a coach and somehow remove yourself from those emotive moments where you lose sight of the game, perhaps, and, and control or influence over it, you know?
1: And again, I, I go back to how fortunate we were to come up through the Football Association of Wales under your tutelage, and you were talking even then about coaching needs to be a profession we need to be professional we need to be considered as doctors and surgeons are considered and and professional people out there in the workplace you don't see a surgeon in the middle of an operation get caught up in the emotion of it and not do the the job properly and you're quite right even though there's fifty thousand people watching perhaps or whatever you're talking about the same thing aren't you you're talking about people going into this profession managing their own emotions being highly emotionally intelligent and, of course, winning fans over and everything else that goes with it. But really, when it comes down to it, being different to the man in the street where they can control those things.
0: Yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, that, that's it. I mean, every, one of the great things of football is that, you know, it's it's global reach. How many people are fans? Huge asset to the game and the, and the like. But, you know, trust in what you're doing.
1: And they want you there because they believe that you are... You know, the person who's put there to do that job. Isn't it?
0: And if they don't want you there, they'll soon let you know. And let's be fair, you know, in, in a professional coaching sphere, having yeah. the sack is a fact of life.
1: Yeah, indeed.
0: So, you know, it's just one of those things. You just have to accept it.
1: Um Well, I really want to talk about, there must have been times you've had an amazing and you continue to have an amazing career and you have literally run federations all across the world and, and worked in national teams and different confederations. And... The experience you have, you know, it, it, you, like I said, I introduced you as football royalty and I know you, you won't want to hear that, but, you know, to a lot of us, sometimes we're, we're kind of sitting there going, well, you know, it can't have been all plain sailing. There must have been times and moments where perhaps you maybe bit off more than you could chew or you, or you were faced with adversity and you had to deal with that. And nobody is as successful as you are without having that grit and determination if you could speak to those people out there now who might be going through it or might be second-guessing themselves or may just be in a tough spot, you know, they love the game, maybe it hasn't gone their way, what, what would you say to them? What did you say to yourself? How did you deal with those moments to obviously continue to have the longevity at the level you've had?
0: Well, there's a couple of things. I, again, you know, I, I was asked a, a kind of City to do something um, on the dismissal of a coach. Basically, the, the coach, you know, it's the days of... Um, Looking for conversation, and I was asked to speak out against the coach, and I just disagreed with it, and I said I wouldn't do it. It didn't help me because on the Friday when I looked at the team sheet, I'd been in the first team, I wasn't on the subs bench, went to the reserves, wasn't playing. I was youth, up to the youth team. All right, yeah. but the fact of the matter is, I certainly believe that whatever your values are, you need to live them. So I have walked away. Quite a lot from roles, if I'm honest. So, obviously, I left the Welsh FA and moved to New Zealand Football to be technical director. Yeah. Um, in my initial two year period, the, the association had some real financial strife. So, I left because I didn't want to take the money where I couldn't do the job. And I could have stayed, but at that time, it would have been very hard to do the job. Um, you know, and, and as, in essence, uh, one of the biggest frustrations I've encountered in uh, New Zealand and Australia is that. You know is actually having a a national influence if you like all guns pointing in the same direction Mm -hmm. Uh, for whatever reason the states or the regions tend to sort of oh it's different here you know we can't run that school's program or whatever yeah um and i and that i find that very frustrating and at times then i have walked away i'll be candid on that i've actually walked away when you when i don't think i can do the job I want to do the job. I don't just want to have the job. Yeah. And if I don't think I can do it for whatever reason, then it's not the job for me, and I'll walk away. Because ultimately, I'll make myself ill. Because I, you know, I'm fully committed, mm. and the frustration just builds up. Or whatever. When, on the other hand, you're working for an environment where, you know, and I certainly feel this with my current environment in Fiji, where I feel that they they're a progressive organisation. They really want to try and do the right things. They listen you know, it doesn't happen overnight, I understand that, but it's, it's not, you know, the the there's, we're, we're gaining momentum, if you like, then actually, you know, you feel as though, right, I can stick this out, I can, you know, weather a couple of little storms or whatever the case may be, you just crack on. If on the other hand, you're pushing water uphill, maybe you shouldn't be staying, you know, so there's a fine line there. I think um, it's a difficult one to gauge. I think, uh, you know, obviously, some people have need the job. they have got to feed the family. They have to do it. Um, I've I've never actually taken that stance, if I'm honest. If I can't do what I think is right, and then I then I'll leave. End of. If I can do it, then I'll. You've got me 100%. I'm you, you know you get 120% out of me.
1: I think there's a lot of people listening to this who will be so enthused by hearing someone articulate that feeling because they may I'm sure there's a lot of people who would do the same thing or have them they'll continue to do the same thing but maybe thought they were doing it alone or maybe they thought they were being silly by doing that but staying true to yourself and the you know immense pressure let's be honest like giving up job titles giving up huge roles giving up the kinds of things you're talking about like some people don't get anywhere near that level in their lifetime you know even for one of the roles that you've held in the last you know, two three decades. So, you I I find I've found moving to another country and living outside of Wales for for a decade now. You only really get tested in those moments. You know, when those tests come along, you only really find about about yourself in those moments. And unless you're oh. in that environment, you never know what how how you're going to react and what you're going to do. And I had
0: my test at 18. You know, as a young pro, mm-hmm. and I and I got to be honest, the, the the guy concerned I met in the car park. it just bumped into him. And he said, he couldn't thank me enough. I mean, you know, he had his compensation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he just was like, I can never thank you enough, son. And to be honest, if they'd asked someone else, I'm sure they would have done it. But they asked the wrong person. You go, well, that's the best testament I've ever been given. And, you know, anything I've done in my career, that's the thing I'm the most proud of, that I didn't stitch someone up for
1: my own benefit. that's that's huge i'm, I'm I just pause there because that's huge that's that like there's a lot of people would say that with the jobs you've done mate and the stuff you've done like for you to be proud more proud of that I think that's major that that lots of people are going to need to hear that and want to hear that mate that's huge Okay, so as, as we sit here now in, in 2023, um, with all the changes that, that you would have seen and you would have been part of driving forward as well, Rob, how has coaching changed? How has, how has coaching elite players changed in your mind on the grass? You know, it, 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 it hasn't always been as simple as, you know, technical warm-up, skill pra- technical practice, skill practice game, Or, you know, what are we seeing now or where is it going now for you that perhaps we didn't do or think about or consider 10, 15 years ago? Is there anything major that you would say that's definitely a shift?
0: I would would imagine that in many cases, I mean, again, I don't know them personally, but I mean, I think it's evident when you watch them that, you know, you watch uh, Man City, you watch Liverpool, there's a team model, you know, they're working on how they play in each of the four moments. And by the four moments, I mean how they attack, transition to defence, defend, transition to attack. And I think, you know, if you periodize your week, um, obviously there would be a point where maybe in pre-season, you'll know, periodise your period where you're just working on you. Mm-hmm. You're not worried about any opponent and you're building your team's capacity, you know, introducing your new signings to your style of play. And your team model. Then obviously, as you get into the season, well, you're looking at opponent and making some some tactical variations perhaps on on that. then of course, the spectrum is there, isn't it? So, you know, if I'm Colchester playing Man United, I'm probably working on how I defend.
1: Man and United, <laughs> yeah.
0: No, that <no>, Colchester are. <laughs> and uh You know, uh, and and obviously, you know, there's a a thought there for a coach. So, you know, do I consider us even with the team, in which case there's a balance? If the other team's superior, you know, let's be fair, if I was playing Germany at the weekend, you know, it would all be about defending and countering. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm making the best use of our possession when we have it, whatever the case would be. So you have a spectrum there. So I think, you know, in the day where perhaps um, it was just sessions, Mm -hmm there's a lot more structure and thought around the construction, not only of the session, but the construction of the week or the six week or a phase. Mm. Um, also, there's a much more, you know, sports science has had a huge influence on the game in the last, well, 20 years alone. Mm. And, it, you know, you go back to our day or my day, you know, we train pretty hard every time. Yeah. And I can remember, I played 75 games in one season and, you know, towards the middle of the season, After 15 minutes, I was blowing. Yeah. yeah. So what did I do? I did more training. More training. Where I should have done less. But, you know, ignorance is bliss. And so, you know, the the whole concept now of uh, managing the loading, you know, it doesn't mean you can't do the work you you want to do. You just manage the loading, working out your week, you know, your recovery period, your diet, nutrition. The, The whole thing is now a seamless ecosystem, isn't it? And it's you know, and I, I even in the th- the last twenty five years, you know, the days when you handed it over to the fitness coach, everyone works collectively now. Indeed, the best clubs they work collectively. The fitness coach is there helping you monitor. It's but a lot more football specific. Mm. You know that doesn't mean there isn't some isolated work, and and it is an ecosystem. Uh, you know, the, the physio, the whole team is a team off mm. the pitch, and all of them construct the week's output.
1: They, especially in you know this this podcast hopefully is going to be heard by a lot of people all around the world hopefully australia new zealand uk everywhere but also in 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 youth soccer in america the the clubs now the youth soccer clubs in america here because of the pay-to-play model they have fantastic facilities they are full-time staff you know the grassroots clubs can often offer you know what you would expect of a professional club at some level so you know periodization and and you know, game models and actual plans. They're a thing of the norm now in a lot of US, US youth soccer clubs. And there'll be a lot of coaches out there who, you know, will, will want to do a great job and maybe, maybe they're under pressure to, 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 to fit in with a periodization model. Maybe they hold on another, another job during the day, but they want to do a good job. But it's, it's, it's definitely something more than it used to be. It's not as easy as just kind of turn up and deliver something and, and, and off you go. For those that really want to get into it and really do a good job, what advice would you give to them? maybe you know maybe maybe it's a little bit outside their comfort zone, maybe it's just extra work they have to do, but they you know these these are good people they want to do a good job, but we can all go out there at some stage in our career and throw a ball out and do a session and and not really have it linked to everything else, and nobody's really going to know any different well let's get into the real meat of it like what what do you say to those people? How do you encourage them to to maybe try new things and branch into new sessions and deliver? new things that maybe they haven't done before. And and as a second part to that question, what is new? I, I can't believe there's a practice out there, Rob, that you haven't seen or you wouldn't have known of, or you didn't invent at this point. Like what is new out there that, that maybe people can think about?
0: Well I think I think it's a it's an interesting one. I think you you know you go through the journey as a coach where you know in your initial period, you know, you might coach, let's just say you coach four times a week, 40 right. weeks. You've got 160 sessions. Yeah. Right? In time, you realise, actually, you only need 12. Yeah. yeah. Right? And, that, yeah. and you know, actually, there might be some variation within the 12, but in essence, you only need 12. Yeah. So uh, I think there's that journey that you go through. The other thing I would say is that, you know, what, what you're, what would, when in, certainly in youth development, actually in any, any, any sort of level of play, you want to make the player great at the things they're good at not not just good across the board but great so you know um build on their strengths and make them great to them you know help them iron out some of their areas of weakness um you know like you might have someone an attacker perhaps who doesn't transition very quickly to defense well that's easily fixed you know that's more about mindset so for me i think that the journey is you know if you put together an, a program you've got a reference point and uh, you know whether it's you use the Japanese Kaizen or whatever in the sense that, you know, once you have a process, you can, you know, let's let's say you go A, B, C, D. Eventually, you might think, actually, we've refined that process. We don't need to see anymore. So it's A, B, D. Mm. You become more efficient. Mm. But if it's just random stuff all the time, mm. you're not sure what's working and what isn't. And so for me, you know, we're a process-driven person. Um, you know, that's the advantage of uh, leaving school with 5.0 levels because you think you're thick. Having a process, I think, gives you the the, um, the luxury of looking back and refining that, adding, maybe taking away, and just learning from what you're
1: doing. On to the kind of what is new thing. I mean, I remember maybe five years ago I saw some some coaches from Common Ball and they were using tape instead of cones on the floor and I'd never seen it before and I was like, oh wow this is something different and, and then I realised it's just tape instead of cones it's not actually yeah. any different and yeah. you know you, we can get caught up sometimes in the new and everything else but ultimately when you've done a possession practice in a, in a rectangle or a square and when you've got players on the outside of a grid or inside a grid when you're working with overloaded numbers or you're doing a crossing and finishing session at some point you get to the point where you've done it all before do we need to invent new ideas and new sessions? Do we need to evolve? Are we... I understand the point of trying to make it as close to transfer the learning to a game. There's some really good work that the English FA have done on the youth modules about that in terms of people want to go up and look for those things, but it, do you think in the next five to ten years we will see a raft of new practices and sessions because of YouTube and more access to the first team environments we see on, on social media, or do you think it's all been done and it's just a, a rehashing of of the old?
0: I mean, i got to be honest, you know, new, I would I think, if, you know, I'm sure you could go back to the 50s and, and prior to that and, and look at stuff people did and go, wow, that was oh, yeah. interesting, you know, reinvent the wheel almost. So, yeah. new, I'm not sure about. I think, yeah. um, in essence, you know, whether you isolate something or it's, you know, fully opposed, its relationship to the game and its ability to improve decision making is a factor for me. So you can do an isolated practice. As long as you can highlight those, uh, maybe not verbalize it, but actually the session stimulates those factors, then the players are learning. So the question being, it's not about just entertainment, is it? Not just about having fun. Mm. It's about actually having a learning outcome. The learning could be hidden. They don't have to know that they're learning. It could be subliminal. Mm. So I'm not sure there is anything new, if I'm candid, Mm, you know? I mean, you see the stimuli, like people do the light sessions, you know, for peripheral vision and stuff and and the like. And, you know, I was talking to someone who did a study in Australia, they did a study in Brazil and they come up with some sessions. Well, what about having, you know, uh, a player behind the player who moves left or right and they judge the peripheral and they Mm -hmm. take the ball in the opposite direction? Mm -hmm. Just by by checking your shoulders a little bit, you get Mm -hmm. the stimuli. You don't need a light. A human indeed. being can indeed, and so, in all honesty, the game tells you what to do. It just be how far you want to break it down, and 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 what the level of of limitation of your isolation. You know,
1: I mean, there's there's genius in that, and and I don't know. I mean, everybody listening to this will will have got to the realization, I'm sure, at some point of. Remember when you stopped watching football as a fan and you started watching it as a coach, <laughs> and then you never go back. Like that's something that everybody will, will resonate with. But what you're talking about is 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 genius, really, and simplicity. But it's genius because you're looking down from that forty thousand feet thing, or you're looking down from the top of the stadium, and you're isolating a period of a part of the pitch, or four or five players, or even one or two players, and then you're producing a practice that. Is as close to the demands of what that might be, and it might not be in a full phase. It might be a broken down bit of that first, as you said. But that's is that something that comes into your kind of planning even now?
0: Well, yeah, you know, I'm certainly find that um, you know over the years you talk about winger fullback practice. For instance, I know I did something like that on the A license where we mm-hmm. did in uh, you know sort of um, functional practice and then build right. them up into a game. Yeah. As long as the stimuli is there. So, for instance, it's no good if the fullback just has the ball at his feet and almost takes a free kick. Yeah, put the winger behind. So if someone plays the ball to the fullback, the winger can time his first movement off the speed of the ball. Then he tries his second movement off the touch. Obviously, that, for me, the ideal one is they're opposed anyway. Then the the defender reads his intent and drops off, but he has it the feet. Uh, the uh, defender gets even tighter when he goes in behind. So there is the game components are evident, but they're not if you like the chaos and the influence of the centre-forward, centre-halves, that isn't evident at that stage. Mm. But if you slowly then introduce it, maybe not in the same session, but if you slowly build that up, then the complication, if is, you know, the, the complexities become tiered and the player starts to realise, oh, he's supposed to center half's already in the channel, how's it defeat? Or they play the centre-forward and he runs inside and collects it off them. so the game nuances become much more um, evident and you can construct that to help people on their journey. Now, you know, in my era, we just played football. Yeah. Now, But I played 20 hours of football comfortably a week. Mm. Easy. Uh, mm. and, you know, and, and not, not organised. I mean, basically we trained and we were lucky twice a week and we played on a Saturday. But I still yeah. played on my way to school, mm. every lunch, you know, dinner time, morning break, dinner time, lunch, afternoon, on the way yeah. home to school. We played. So you yeah. learn subliminally, you learn, unconsciously learn a lot of these things. Now, you know, there's an element where you have to construct a learning environment for players to absorb this because they don't play 20 hours of football a week.
1: And a, a lot of professional clubs in Europe, in, in England, Wales, they're going back to these models of free play. And, and I remember being at Chelsea probably, what was it, six or seven years ago, and I'd I just arrived as the like under-nine session was started and the the two chelsea coaches are there geared out ready to go and they didn't do anything they didn't say anything the kids mm-hmm. just started playing and they were playing six a side it was relatively safe they decided on their own rules they were in a you know a little cage environment with a with a you know 3g pitch or whatever it was but you know i i, I never got to ask them but i wanted to ask them afterwards and while i was talking to somebody else in the in the time that i was there they told me what it was they said like we need to bring back the the playing on the street we need to bring back the the playing in the yard. We need to bring back some of that because all the environments are so formalized these days. And that's certainly something in the United States. There is no free play. There is no way for them to go and just kick a ball. Everybody has to drive everywhere. everybody has, everybody has to be supervised by adults all the time. And and you're just not getting the same experience that, that perhaps I grew up with playing, and you certainly grew up playing.
0: I think, I, I, and I think there's probably a, a a medium where you can use the whole spectrum. You know, free play. Mm. Um, constructive sessions, etc. What I think you can't be doing, you can't be saying to play play A, B, or C. Mm. You know what you hope is the player recognizes the best option yeah. that, that's available.
1: Yeah. You know,
0: and and in essence, uh, helping them recognize what those options are is is the art of good youth coaching. Um, mm. But I do think, yeah, I think free play is an aspect. You know, um, I just think practice is an aspect, and there's not enough of it. And again. You know, um, I, I know. Um, you know, there's there's some Craig Johnson, for instance, in Australia. Craig Craig's got some really ingenious ideas around that, um, using modern technology. So it might be a podcast that you get hold of in the future. Oh, I'd
1: love to, love to, um, yeah.
0: But you know, some, yeah, yeah, someone like someone like Craig is, a, you know, a thought really outside the box, mm. and um, would be a really interesting talk. But you know, so I, I think. You you can't you know it's not one or the other you know like I said we 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 the ball was always at your feet mm-hmm. you know our back lawn well there was hardly any lawn because my brother and I were on it uh, you know twenty four seven really yeah so I think you know we got to be careful that we don't just rely on free play yeah but it's still a factor that we should encourage and certainly in the training how can you judge the players have learned when you have just got to let them play at some stage
1: yeah.
0: you know now whether that's a whole part whole whether that's you you know whatever there's loads of methodologies but ultimately yes i think we just got to look at the spectrum and not get wedged into one little niche and say oh no well i break it all down you know it's all little passing practices la de la de la Mm -hmm. and then phases of play and that's it you know there's a whole range of activities you can do which i think as a coach we should invest in
1: just quickly on concentration, Rob. I, I hear a lot of people um, redirect young players and, and even elite players in terms of maybe they've made a mistake, maybe they've made the wrong choice, maybe they've just played a poor pass. And the feedback tends to be switch on or, you know, focus or, or maybe something in, in lines of, you know, implying that they weren't concentrating, perhaps, when maybe it wasn't that. It was what you were just talking about. It was the inability to select the right course of action based on the perception in front of them. Is that something that is a crutch maybe we use too much as coaches and, and and fall into because it's the, again, it's the Hollywood, you know, coach says focus and you focus and then you become great. Like, is that kind of what you're talking about there?
0: There's a guy called uh, Kerry Evans. Kerry played for Oxford United in the in the old, um, what, what is now the Premier League. Um, and he's a forensic psychologist. Kerry's an absolute genius and you know, I don't want to pinch his words here, but, you know, when you make a mistake, you know, you, often the redhead comes because you you become agitated and the like. So if you can help players just move on to the next action, mm-hmm. you know, like right, i missed the goal. Great. Well, you know, next action is, is a goal pick. Let's get back set up, you know, whatever the case may be. Next action, next action is fine. I, I But in terms of the coaching, well, you know, let's be fair, people make good decisions but execute poorly. Mm. Well, in my case, if you've made a good decision but you execute poorly, don't worry about it. Mm. You were doing the right thing. It just maybe didn't come off. If, on the other hand, you you've made a bad decision and executed it well, but the, you know, but the run's not there or whatever the case may be, we probably need to help players make better decisions. So, for, as a coach, what are the type of cues that you can give them that would tell them whether it's A or B or C? You know, so for, and it might be nuances. So, you know, you play someone in behind, but actually they haven't recognized that the center half's on his back foot.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, over time, that becomes unconscious. You only you just know, mm-hmm. but initially, you might not know. So, how do we actually, as coaches, give players the, the little bits of gold that help them make better decisions? And uh, you don't want to be stopping the session all the time, admittedly. You know, your interventions need to be short and sharp. Um, but for me, in the in the match, it's next action. Just get on with the next thing. Uh, and if if you can build that, I think that's help, helpful because it helps people close matters. I mean, I can always relate back to when I played at Cardiff City, there was, you know, there was a little gang of us who get at the back of the bus and digest the whole game, you know, and overdo it. And then there was lads who basically, once the whistle had gone and they got changed, the game had finished, end off, done. And in a way, there's something good about both.
1: Everybody's different, yeah.
0: But I think being closure is a good thing. So, actually, you know, not, not worrying too much about a bad performance. Just, you know, as long as you've lived the values, you've worked hard, you've done these things, Everyone, play, everyone's a stinker. You know, what or I'd say to players around, if someone makes a mistake, don't criticize them. Mm. But if they've made a, a bad choice, help them make a better yeah. choice. So, help your team make, make a better choice, you know, rather than be the one like, oh, rubbish pass or whatever. Well, if it was a good decision and the execution was bad, you, don't worry, Rob, keep doing that because it's a good choice.
1: Can, can we just talk quickly about perhaps, because it's a very emotive thing. You see it a lot in youth sports coaching, especially here in this in the States. Somebody will do something, they'll play a pass or they won't get the ball off their foot quick enough. And then, you know, you hear coaches, and, and I go to tournaments all the time and I... I I try to walk around and listen and watch as much as I can because I want to understand the ecosystem as well as good practice, right? And you hear coaches say things like, we're playing in blue today, or do it on your first touch, not your seventh touch when the player's taken three touches. Yeah. Now, you know what the infer- inference is. Yeah. That ju- you know what they're trying to do and what are trying to say. I don't know that their intention... I don't want think- to live in a world where they're intentionally trying to vindictively upset or hurt a young player. But that is often the response, the multi response you see. What what damage is that doing to a young player and the learning process and just everything? What is what? Why is that so bad? Well, I think I think you know if you, if you're trying to help them,
0: try and help them. So, for instance, like I was saying, if you've if you've made a good decision, so I mean, I, I'd like to think as a coach, you know, when I when I've seen a player sort of make a good decision and it hasn't come off, I'll just usually go, "Good decision, keep keep trying that," you know. If on the other hand I want to say, you know, so their execution may be off, the pass got intercepted or something, but actually, whatever. If, on the other hand, they've made a poor decision, well, help them with the decision. You know, you might say, Tommy, when you see that, think of this. Mm. Now, you might not, the likelihood of them actually hearing that and digesting that during the game is minimal. Of course. So there might be a time to do that, and it might be in training. You know, do you remember in the game you did so-and-so? Well, when you do that, have a little think about this today you know when you see that so I think I think feedback in the game should be minimal in terms of that personally and I you know in terms of where I mean I run when my son was uh, you know eight I ran the underage team or something like this I got asked to do it yeah and we had some rules the parents could only shout encouragement even for the opponent no feedback to the players and we just wanted them to try Mm. and learn by success or failure and they were great absolutely great the parents were fantastic and in fact, most of those lads uh, stayed in sport. And they, yeah. one or two played decent standard of football, but most stayed active. And at the very least, if your sport keeps, and this is something I think we were quite good at in the trust, if, if, if participating in sport means that you like sport, and in football you end up liking sport, sport mm-hmm. football's done its job. Yeah. But I can think back to my school days, where basically a whole, a whole group of people would put off sport for life. Right, and then took it up in their thirties and realized they were a good runner or something. You know,
1: my sister sister just finished a half marathon and beat my time by four minutes. She's never run a day in her life. She's just decided to get into sport now for exactly that reason. Turned off completely in school. And
0: and then there's sort of the running boom in the eighties. Load of people I knew who who, you know never really flourished in sport, often got uh, criticised, etc. Oh. Turned out to be decent, you know, runners, but at, you know, at a time of life, actually, they missed their prime, and you go, "There's that that can't be right."
1: No. So yeah.
0: I think you've got to be very careful as a coach about sarcasm, mm-hmm. very careful about you know highlighting all the negatives when, in essence, you know, there's nothing to say, you know, you, you know, try and do it on two touch, two touch tempo, fine, mm-hmm. yeah, especially if actually it's a consistent one that someone takes too many touches mm-hmm. because that's not as positive affirmation in some respects. But if you're constantly highlighting the negatives, you know, there's a danger there. Equally so, you know, um, it, it shouldn't always be about highlighting the positives. You know, oh, you well. want to help someone yes. overcome some of their weaknesses. So, you know, overcome those issues. So there's a fine balance. It's just to just be careful of the extremes you take the balance down, you know.
1: I think that's a great way to put it. Just be careful because the, the, the danger is the damage you might create for a young person going into adolescence, going into their 20s. And we all know the lessons we learn in our 20s. But the ultimate situation is you might get an adverse reaction to them even wanting to take risk in their later life or, or wanting to you know, to to, to to expand out of their comfort zone in later life. And really, what right do we have as youth coaches to impact on that outside of the game if they're not going to be in the game? And obviously, the knock-on effect of them quitting sport. and all the 100%. I'll
0: give you a little example of um, just how... You know, so when we were with the under 16s, 15, 16s in the Welsh FA, but we mm. we were played at a game and we made a change at half time and announced the change at half time, tactical predominantly. Mm. And the 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 boys were so uncomfortable because the player was uncomfortable mm. at halftime. You could you could sense this empathy with the lad we changed. Mm. And we didn't perform particularly well for about 15 minutes after half time. And literally I went, That's our fault.
1: Mm.
0: We managed that badly. So we made a choice that if we were ever going to make a halftime choice, we'd grab the player halftime as we were walking off, just say, so, you know, and it transpired in a game not, not long after. Different group of players. So I pulled him aside, just said to the lad, look, we're going to make a tactical. You're doing okay. We're going to make a tactical. I'm taking you off. Don't worry about it. You know, we, we're happy with what you've done, but it is a, a positional change. So anyway, we make the change. We announce the change. The boys look looking at him and because he's Indeed. okay with it. Yeah, they were okay with it. Yeah. And it worked like that. And it yeah. was a lesson there in terms of how, you know, uh, helping the, the group's empathy without making excuses or the like, um, just, just, they were able to move through it straight away. Right, that makes sense to move through and it, and it's applied, applied in senior football
1: as well every every top player that i've spoken to work with they've all said the same thing look i get it you're going to you're going to give me some bad news bad information you're going to correct yeah. me you're going to do this you're going to do that but just do it openly do it honestly do it with an element of empathy of course but just be real with me and and have yeah. that conversation when you're walking off with that with that young lad in the example there and you're having that conversation it's not an easy conversation to have you could no. easily walk into the dressing room and just deal with it later. And, and like you said, then you get the, the fallout, right? But just by being putting yourself in a difficult situation, and you should have the, the wherewithal and the quality and the skill and the calmness to be able to do that really when you're doing that kind of job, shouldn't you? So why, so why don't we do that more? Why don't coaches seek those moments out? Is it just because it's uncomfortable? And, and do we just need to get over that as coaches?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think the other thing is you know have that empathy. So basically, you know, try and remember back to the time you got dropped, or the time you got binned, or the time you got taken off, you know, yeah. and, and the like, and and just relate how you might have dealt with it if it had been done different. You know, that's not to say that you know everything's got to be in a kid love or anything of that nature. No. We're not saying that, yeah. um, because I think you can smell insincerity when someone says to you, "Oh, you're doing really well," but you go, yeah. "No, I'm not." Yeah. You know. I mean, I had a games teacher who years ago we had a thing called the Raffle Cup and we had a Red Ravens and Black Ravens. I was at Red Ravens and he said, you're going to play for Black Ravens. I said, you've dropped me. And he went, no, no, I just want your experience. there. I went, you've dropped me. I'm like 10. <laughs> you knew.
1: <laughs> you knew even then. You could smell it even then.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, to be fair, I ended up winning the player of the tournament. But the thing, funny thing was, he eventually went, okay, Rob, well, you know, and I hung up. And I was like, and you know, to this day, we're mates. And the guys, you know, you know I respect them totally. To this day, all my games teachers I respected him totally, but it was one of those where you just knew you could smell it.
1: Yeah. And, you
0: know, know. And then, and therefore, why wouldn't anyone smell it off you?
1: Indeed. What? what I want to get into what you're doing now, Rob, and obviously the, the amazing project you've got here with the Fiji national team, but, you know, wh- just on that then, to finish that bit off, if you have to have an honest conversation with a player, let's say you're selecting a player for the international squad or not, or you know, if you really have to get in there and you know yourself, this is a face-to-face. I have to go and do this now. Like, what advice? What is there a protocol you follow? Is there advice you would give to young aspiring coaches who, who perhaps want to do that well? You know, because if you get it wrong, you're gonna have a, you're gonna have a major problem. So, well, I think you know, from a
0: sort of, um, you basically speak the truth. You know, so for instance, you know, you're not, you know, maybe someone that's not going to start you know, uh, and maybe not be on the bench, you know, you have an individual meeting, like whether it's, you know, time doesn't always allow you to for a sit down, but literally call them over in training. Here's the situation, you know, here's the rationale behind it, um, blah, 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 and just be, be honest. I think the player respects that, you know, and also, you know, like sometimes it might be about fitness, for instance, you know, so what can you then do to help resolve that issue? You know, I'm not talking about injury, but you might have someone who's not fit enough for a crucial game, you know, or whatever the case may be. Um, What are we actually doing to contribute towards his development or her development to help them be fit enough? So it's not just a case of dismissing them and saying, sorry, you know, whatever, because there's a partnership, isn't there? So, you know, you know, I think and that's what you're hoping to build is that sort of um, ability to help them become a regular. You know, I would say in junior football, my, you know, I'm a big fan of the. Everyone plays, you know. Mm-hmm. I, there's nothing worse as a kid, than we've all experienced it. Stood on the side waiting for you to go.
1: Yeah.
0: And you get two minutes at the end. If that's a message to say, choose that, you know, sport's are no good for you. Yeah. And we've got to make sure our grassroots aren't doing that, you know? I, I,
1: I have made a conscious effort in my, in my youth coaching um, to, at least in a period of maybe two or three months in a season, to have started everybody in a game, to have, yeah. you know, given somebody two games in a row. Even if I know that maybe, you know, not to not their detriment, because they, they need opportunity to develop. And you're not going to develop unless you have a good training programme and have a good game's programme. But everybody, after a certain period of time, will be able to say, I've experienced starting, I've experienced coming off the bench, I've experienced being left out, whatever it might be. And only then, I think, can you have any conclusions of any kind of quality and, and you know, validity because if you've only ever brought a kid on, as you say, for ten minutes at the end or three minutes at the end, how are you ever going to have any kind of, you know, valid opinion at the end? You've never seen the kid start a football match. No. You know I mean? And to
0: be fair for for them, you know, they they've not accrued game time. Yeah. So you know, often you you know, if you took two two players, for instance, and, and you don't know their background, and you're having a trial, for instance, yeah. some player might have older brothers who have actually played, you know, for five years. And they're doing quite pretty well, and then you've got the kid who's actually just taking up, and they're not doing too badly. But well, who's got the most potential? Probably the one on the the one who's just taking it up. Yeah. But we make this decision far too often on, oh, they're stronger, bigger, faster. You know, they're more advanced, so they're in. Well, actually, what we're doing is slowing down the development of
1: everyone, mm.
0: of the others. So you know, it, there's a balance to be had there. I know it digressed a little bit from
1: the fee sheet discussion, but you know, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. But absolutely. I wanted to sign that bit off because I thought I was really, really interested. But yes, let's let's get into that. So Rob, unbelievable career. Continuing to work at the highest level. Obviously, you have this opportunity here now in a part of the world where you're you're not just you know responsible for results, but also developing the game as well. Like what what drew you to this challenge and what and what you know what do the world need to know about Fiji soccer?
0: Well, I'll be honest and say, you know, I've I've lived in New Zealand now since two oh seven and in the Oceania region. Obviously, you know, uh, people will be very aware of the you know athleticism within the region from rugby for instance particularly and and they're fantastic athletes and you've still got a situation where kids are playing on the street so there's still that sort of um what's the right term still that sort of level of just skill just um you know know, and and whatever and so there's a phenomenal opportunity here in, in not only in Fiji but but across the whole region so I was doing some consulting for OFC I knew Fleming's era after the previous coach. Fleming used to be on the era panel in Europe um, from the coach ed days, and we had a number of liaisons. I understood uh, Fleming was leaving. I just happened to raise it with Timo Jalikowski, the the TD, and it manifested from there. And I'll be honest, since my TD days, obviously in Wales, it's the perfect scenario. So, you know, I had the 16s and 15s. I was technical director, and we had coach education for a month in the summer. Great. When I moved to New Zealand, I was more isolated. They wouldn't let me actually coach. Um, and so, you know, I've been lucky enough to coach, but often, um, you know, with John Herman, it was after I left you New know, Zealand football. I was, the Australian FA let me coach with the Canadian women. And so coaching is my passion. And as I'm getting to the end of my career, I sort of thought, well, I just want to get back on the turf. And a bit of self actualization I mean, I can remember in 2006, my last A licence in Wales, a couple of candidates saying, how the hell are not you coaching full-time? You know, and you're like, which is very gratifying, if I'm honest, oh. you know, and I hadn't passed him at that stage either. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, you know, that, that type of thing. So I, I wanted a coach, and obviously the opportunity came up. Um, like I said, progressive FA, loads of potential. One of the big things we, we have a challenge is, is that if you haven't held a passport, um, in, in, once you turn 18, you have to reside in the country for five years. Right. Well, we've we've some lads in Canada, we've some lads in the US who are playing a decent standard. There's a couple of boys in the A League, and the likelihood is we can't actually play them because they won't have a passport. They're not going to give up their career and move back to Fiji. Mm. There's a bit of lobbying going on. Hopefully, the government might change that because in many countries, if your mum and dad or your grandparents live there, you can get your passport.
1: Indeed, so yes. that's
0: a kind bit of a challenge. Okay. But equally so, you know, um, like I said, progressive. I can have the players in camps, whereas outside of the FIFA windows, mm. so I'll have opportunities to work with them, and and actually develop them, you know, over an extended period. Mm. And it's um and, and and I think they're a very progressive FA. They are, uh, they've got a long term plan, and obviously I'm the the, the element of the short term plan. You know, we're very much about the next cycle, but there's longer term work going on as well. So it's the sandwich effect. Hopefully, we can make some progress. And um, and and the um, sorry, uh, FIFA have extended. Oceania only ever had 0.5 of a place for the World Cup. Now it's 1.5.
1: Yeah, with the bigger. So yeah, yeah, Yeah.
0: yes. So now there's a chance that you know if you don't qualify automatically, and obviously New Zealand, the stronger nation, Mm. um, but there's a 0.5 slot up, so you could then go into the into the continental playoff, and you could still you know you could still do it. So. The chances of having two Oceania teams in the World Cup are there now. Obviously, the tournament's bigger with the forty-eight teams, etc. But you know, all the sort of ducks are lining up, and um, and it's just an opportunity that's too good to miss. You know, really,
1: it's uh, it's very realistic. The qualification could be attained in that way, and we've seen that with some CONCACAF nations and and yeah. other teams that perhaps haven't been to tournaments. They've done the same thing, and and there's obviously a huge benefit, as you said, in terms of having. Longer camps or more time with the players when there's no major domestic league in the country that makes perfect sense as well. And you know you'd be on the grass working and getting your principles embedded. And um, you know that's 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 the work as you say you love to do. What 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 is Fiji soccer for you? What what will we see from the Fijian national team? Like how how do you want the game to be played there?
0: Well, I think um, you know there'll be that element of spontaneity. You know mm. uh, that ability to do something off the cuff. You know, uh, the unexpected, definitely. We want to build a structure. So, you know, possession-based game, you know, uh, aggressive in transition, you know, and try and win it back as soon as you can. And then on a collective organised defence, et cetera, with a good counter mentality. So we will be building that. And they have built on that, you know, under Fleming's period, but we'll, we'll try and elevate that onto another level. And, of course, with youth development happening now and younger teams, so the Oceania region is, you know, Introducing under 15s tournament and stuff, so there's a lot more continuity rather than just the two-year cycles. So there's a real chance to build an, uh, a national identity in terms of playing style as we move forward. Mm. So we're looking at looking at that, obviously. Then you know, like I said, but we don't want to take away that individualism that they have. You know, we have defenders who would quite easily drop the shoulder and take someone out of the game. Oh, mm. well, great, no problem. You know, if you want to actually create overloads, well, you just beat someone. <laughs>
1: That's the way to do it. Yeah, exactly. Right.
0: You know, so those are the type of things we want to, but we, we really want the players to understand why they're doing everything, you know, and they probably are, aren't fulfilling their athletic potential yet in, in terms of the National League's pretty good, mm. but it's not pro. So ultimately, you know, we need to get the players fitter and they've got enormous potential athletically. So, you know, that that in itself will be a factor where we can play at a higher intensity for, for longer. So that will be something we're trying to do. Uh, progressive organisation, they've got some plans afoot and good people. Uh, uh, as a nation, they're good people. They're uh, very good people.
1: There's Maybe maybe I'm wrong, but there's a lot of similarities I would have thought between a country like Wales and a country like Fiji in terms of sporting heritage and, and perhaps not having all the resource in the world, but still producing on the world stage. Obviously, the rugby comparisons are there. We see that yeah. in the, the Rugby World Cup right now. And and I fancy when I watch the Fijian rugby team play, they still hold on to that element of freedom and, and invention yes. and what makes them Fijian. But perhaps they are coming across, certainly in the rugby anyway, to to, to that professional world where they are more, you know, they're, more, they're, they're winning more games. They, they're getting through. They nearly beat Wales. They, they beat Australia. Like, you're seeing... You're seeing them perform on a world level now, whereas perhaps before it was more off the cuff and that didn't really work on a on a on a national stage. But that's probably the same journey you're going through with the football, I would think.
0: Well, the, the Dura they have a professional rugby team in the Australian, um, New Zealand sort of um, uh, leagues, which is great. So there's a domestic professional team, but also they have a high percentage of overseas players playing professionally in some of the world's top leagues. You know, now that. Ultimately, it's probably the aim where, it actually, if we could get more players overseas, you know, both short-term, long-term, so a good campaign would expose players. Then, you know, for the clubs, there's a revenue stream, you know, with international transfers and the like. Yeah. And also raises the profile of the game. If you're going to see some of your lads on TV in some major leagues, fantastic. Now, if, you know, and there is a huge potential here. I, I mean, I, you know, I, obviously, France have tapped into Tahiti and New Caledonia. There's a lot of lads in the division, French divisions from there. And I do think some of the other nations aren't capitalised upon enough, and Fiji being one of them. So, yeah, obviously, you know, if we can um, get more lads playing in the right environment, that's great. There will be lads playing in the right environment. So, actually, there'll be boys in Canada yeah. um, and girls, to be fair. Uh, let's take the gender out. There'll be Fijian-eligible players playing in Canada, the US, UK particularly, through the... Uh, armed services, you know, parents in the armed services, um, Australia, and New Zealand. We're aware of those, but if there is anyone out there and they are eligible, then you know we need to know. So obviously they can probably just go online, look up the sort of info at Information Line, uh, email to the national body, and just put their CB in or put mm-hmm. put something in, and we'll contact them and we'll we'll you know build our database. But you know, so if anyone's out there, we want to know. Definitely want to
1: know. And I'm sure they are. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this who would have a vested interest in supporting the talent ID pathway, and and probably have players themselves, or may even be a player who, who hopefully will listen to this at some point. And yeah. we'll drop a, we'll drop a, um, some details in the in the link as well, obviously below, in terms of how we can help you get a hold of people as well. So That'd um, be great. That, that's a massive part of it, because obviously the wider you set the net, and the more talent you you identify, um, even if you're holding, you know, in time you're holding talent ID camps in the US or in England or or wherever it might be like you know you can you can move on to that if if these people obviously come through
0: 100% 100% you know and the, the broader reach I mean the, the game is truly global now you know the days when you know a uh, uh, Cardiff City only looked at lads from Cardiff or maybe yeah. the Valleys are, are, are long gone aren't they let's be fair
1: of course they are, of course they are. and to be fair to,
0: to Don Murray they, they did look into Scotland <laughs> <laughs>
1: they did try
0: they did try uh, good old Don great guy
1: Rob, it's been it's been absolutely phenomenal you give us this amount of time and just personally for me and for everybody listening to benefit from the experience of someone who's not not just been in your position and done you know the roles you've done and, and worked in the jobs you've worked in but who generally cares about people and you know young coaches aspiring coaches people who just need opportunity and people who you know will be listening to this today and thinking you know maybe they maybe they're struggling along maybe they're trying to Walk the path you've walked, and, and it's not quite happening from right now, or they don't really see where the end is. They're going to listen to this and, and be, draw strength from that. And that was really what this whole pro player podcast was about in the first place. So I can't thank you enough, mate.
0: My pleasure, Dave. One little comment I'll say is that, you know, having worked in, in national bodies, you know, and yourself, you've done the same. You know, when you're in that position, whether you're an administrator, you know, competition manager, you're a custodian of the game. And far too often we only look at today and this year. We need to stretch our eyes to 20 years down the road because, you know, when we're maybe sitting, having a glass of wine as a pensioner, which I'm not far off, you know, (laughs) you want to be able to to look back and go, uh, I think there's a lot of us can do this. We look at the health of the game in Wales and go, yeah, we did a bit. Yeah. And among the thousands of volunteers who did a a big bit as well, but we did a little bit. What you don't want to look at is that... You know the game in disarray, and then you go, fool I could have done more." You know we really need to nurture the game and everyone in it: coaches, parents, everyone. Everyone is involved. They need to have a positive experience.
1: Rob, thank you so much. It's been amazing, and uh, we look forward to maybe speaking to you again as the, as the Fiji project develops and and following your career continued again. And uh, just thank you, thank you from from everybody here at theproplayer.com.
0: Thank you, Dave. Great stuff. And make sure you keep in touch, mate. Okay?
1: Absolutely will. Thank you, Bob.
0: Good stuff.